I see shorter dated rates staying higher for longer to fight inflation. And I think that kind of knee-jerk reaction that we've had maybe over the last 10, 15 years of the Fed reacting very quickly, cutting rates, I'm not sure that plays out this cycle unless we have some massive kind of exogenous risk here. Welcome to Tomorrow's News, the podcast that cuts through the noise on venture capital and alternative investing. I'm Lucy Du, and I'm here to guide you through the exciting and ever-changing world of investing with my co-host, Gavin Ezekowitz, the co-founder of BFA Global Investors. Together, we bring you our take on the hottest discussions in growth investing and global markets, from Silicon Valley startups to the burgeoning markets in Asia and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, join us as we dive deep into the world of alternative investing. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. In this episode, we are joined by Ronnie Green, founder and manager of GFAM Global Credit Opportunities Fund and an experienced global credit analyst to help investors understand bond duration and how it plays into the nuances and complexities of managing a bond portfolio. We discuss Ronnie's short duration strategy in his portfolio and how he considers other factors and risks in managing a fund focused on capital preservation and high single digit returns. Bank hybrids are back in the conversation as Ronnie helps us think about how they could be sensitive to changes in credit risk. And now, here's Gavin and Ronnie. Such a pleasure to have Ronnie Green with us yet again. Today, we're going to talk about bond duration. And fortunately, Ronnie is going to define that for us before we get into it. It's a tremendously important concept. And I should warn you, though, before we get into this, because Every bear loves duration, right? My favorite is this guy, Canadian, or a Canadian named David Rosenberg, who like, hasn't liked anything oh. since like 2009. So bears, they love duration. Ronnie's going to explain why they love duration. But at the end of the day, one of the things is super important about the bearish view, of course, is that everything goes down, rates go down. And so owning these longer dated products is always, longer dated bonds is always a magnificent way of performing. But bears also like shorter duration stuff. And Ronnie's going to talk a little bit about that in terms of his own portfolio, uh, because you don't get hurt with volatility. So that's important. And Ronnie has done a great job this year, just a little promote for him before we get going. Ronnie's done a great job this year, taking his duration shorter for the first part of the year, and then using surgical strikes, and I'm going to change my ringtone on the phone to, to storm shadow because we surgical precision to deliver some great returns for the first quarter. So it's a pleasure to have Ronnie on with us today. Ronnie, welcome. And before we get into the detail, please explain to me like I'm five, bond duration, what does it mean for investors? Why should they care? Yeah, thanks for having me. Look, I think when people look at a bond fund or a bond in particular, one of the first things they look at is the duration of it. And the first thing that comes to mind with duration is like a length of time. And like the traditional way to think about it is how much time will it take for me to like the coupons to give me my money back? But 
in reality, what it is, is it's the sensitivity of a bond to moves in interest rate. If rates move up 1%, for instance, how much in price will the bond move? There's also spread duration, which is the sensitivity of the bond to credit risk as well. In reality, it's a measure of volatility of a particular security. But there's so much nuance in it, Gavin. And I think it's a really interesting topic because as I've been meeting lots of people, it's the one thing that keeps coming up. What's your duration? What's your view on duration? I think it's a super interesting topic for now, as you alluded to in your intro. Thank you for the explanation. So as we started this year, you had a very heavy weighting to cash. I think you've kept that, which has shortened your duration. But what does that mean from a portfolio perspective? Are you also taking some longer dated risk or barbell type approach? Because you've got to generate, obviously, some return out of the portfolio and you can't do it all in the short end. Yeah. So I think, you know, what's interesting in today's market is we have something quite unusual, Gavin. We have what they call an inverted yield curve. So we have rates at the front end, you know, say in the US, the front end rates, the Fed funds rates at over 5% now. And then you've got the 10-year, which is at 3.5%, which is very unusual. And to allude to David Rosenberg, like it's a very recessionary signal to have an inverted yield curve. So what should an investor do there? The obvious thing to do is to stay at the front end and to harvest those yields. The non-consensus thing to do is to say, hey, maybe the bond market's telling us a recession's coming, so we should add to duration here. That's not my view, Gavin. I think we're probably in more of a muddle through type situation with the economy. Maybe a slow grind to lower growth is my higher probability view. And for that reason, I think that the market pricing and cuts for Fed funds rate, for the RBA, et cetera, are probably a little bit pessimistic, I would say, from an economy perspective, maybe optimistic from a bond price perspective. But I just don't see it happening. I see shorter dated rates staying higher for longer to fight inflation. And I think that kind of knee-jerk reaction that we've had maybe over the last 10, 15 years of the Fed reacting very quickly, cutting rates, I'm not sure that plays out this cycle, unless we have some massive kind of exogenous risk here. So in terms of my portfolio, you're right. I'm staying really short duration. I'm about two-year duration for now. And when I talk about duration, I'm talking about interest rate risk on the portfolio. But yes, also spread duration, which is the other concept related to credit risk, is also very short. It's about two years as well. And you just don't think you're being rewarded, I guess, given your view that we're not headed off a cliff. You're just not being rewarded to buy 10 years or 20 years, be it either treasuries or corporates, that the risk return there, given the likely path that you see, is makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I think like maybe there are some specific situations with specific issuers that issue a very cheap 10-year bond or there's cheap risk in the market. But if you look at it just from a government risk perspective, say a 10-year Aussie government bond or a 10-year US Treasury, I think the risk here is for higher rates. I think the higher probability is that rates go a little bit higher. And I just don't think that's a good risk reward for what I'm trying to do in the portfolio of low volatility, get most of the returns through kind of income generation and quite honestly, have some dry powder for when things do get very cheap to be able to, uh, to take advantage of those dislocations. Yeah, it, it, it's, such a, it's, it's such an important point, right? I mean, I think if you're trying to run a low volatility strategy, 
unless you're using very complex derivatives, having a lot of duration in your portfolio doesn't really serve you, does it? No, it doesn't. I think the good thing about the portfolio these days is you can buy longer dated risk and hedge out the, the interest rate risk. So that's another view, and that's a view on credit spreads, et cetera. So that's all the things I'm thinking about. So kind of credit curves as well as interest rate curves. You know, it's all super interesting. But yeah, at the moment, like I said before, I'm very low interest rate risk and spread risk. It's a view, I think I've expressed it here before, that credit spreads are not particularly cheap either. So it's not something I want to take too much risk at this point in time. I guess one of the things we hear uh, a lot of people saying, oh, great that this guy's running a bond fund, but you know, can't I just do this all at home on my own, right? What is it as a manager that you are thinking about that is, well, I'm going to call it relatively complex or nuanced, yeah. that might be somewhat difficult for somebody to replicate at home unless they were devoting, as you do, 14 hours a day to it? Yeah, at least. Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's so many nuances in this market. You know, I'll give you an example. It's top of mind. I think CBA is out with a Pearl's issuance, you know, like one of their AT1s. You've expressed your love of hybrids before, haven't you? Yeah, sure. Look, without putting the boot into anything or anyone in particular, I think one of the nuances, which you kind of asked me about, which I think is interesting for a lot of people to think about. So one of the ways they market that security, and in fact, it's all the bank hybrids, is their floating rate, right? So they... BBSW, in this case, say 300. Great. Mm. Six. To a regular investor, there's no interest rate in that, interest rate risk in that, right? So great. You know, if BBSW goes up, I go up. If BBSW goes down, you know, I have no interest rate risk. But the reality of the situation is you are taking on enormous spread duration risk. So these are very long duration instruments. If the credit spread of that bank moves, then that thing starts extending into perpetuity. So if credit spreads go up 1%, you can be down 20 points on that bond. As an example, look, I love CBA. I think they're a really well-managed bank and I I love them. I'm not saying it's going to happen to that, but you you saw it in, you know, recently with the the AT1 market after the Credit Suisse, you know, even banks like HSBC, if that kind of perception of risk changes and they extend out to perpetuity, they start acting like 30-year bonds, right? Not three-month interest rate risk. So, So that's something a nuance that people probably aren't too aware of. Actually, it reminds me of something, Gavin. When I first joined the trading desk at JP Morgan, you know, someone pulled me aside and they were very clear to me that duration risk doesn't kill you. If you buy a 30-year government bond, yes, you might have some mark-to-market, but you'll get your capital back, right? But credit risk kills you. So you take, you know, if you kind of get into that kind of yield pig, Seth Klarman type of, you know, substituting credit risk for duration, that never ends well. So I think it's just something that, you know, me as a portfolio manager, I'm very mindful of. It's very simple to like add yield to a portfolio. You just take more credit risk. You know, you could buy a private mortgage at 9% or bank hybrid, you know, like there's ways to add yield to the portfolio without taking duration risk. But is it a very thoughtful way to do it? I think the answer, there's, I think there's a lot of folly in doing it that way. Now, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank may uh, dispute your uh, claim that uh, yes, I was going to say with, duration, <laughs> with no leverage, with no leverage, <laughs> without leverage, without du- leverage, duration can kill you when mismanaged. Um, when you lose your funding, right? When you lose your funding in twenty four hours, it's so true. It's so true. Look, so that's such an important point. It's not just duration; it's credit plus duration, which is really critical. 
And I think such an important point there is just how you've described. Again, you know, CBA is a great financial services company, but what we've seen in all kinds of financial services companies, very high quality US, in this case, companies that are sort of robust, you know, as I say to people there, they're mathematically robust. The perception when it changes can be quite damaging incredibly quickly, and it can take a long time to recover that spread, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing that, you know, maybe to put in kind of like the bluntest terms, Gavin, which I think is quite telling. So, you know, take a First Republic, for instance, they had some senior debt outstanding. Whether you have a one-year First Republic bond or a 30-year First Republic bond, they both fall to the recovery value. So, duration is like irrelevant in that (laughs) sense. So, So, like, just to give you a sense, in fact, Typically, what happens is the short duration bonds sell off the most in like a credit event because they're high dollar price and everyone just wants the higher dollar price bonds, right, to sell them. So that's typically what you see is you see like an inversion, actually, like the the shorter duration bonds get super cheap relative to the longer duration bonds. Yeah, no, it's such an interesting point. I mean, maybe to some extent, we're seeing that in a very limited way in the US Treasury market at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, I think we may hit 6% on some of these notes that are coming due in, in June and July. Don't fear duration. I think it's a tool. You know, the way I think about it as a portfolio mm. manager is a tool. I'm not fearful of it. Like, it's just a view on, on how to position the portfolio and to do it in kind of like the most probabilistic, trying to do smart things in the portfolio. And I think the smartest high probability thing today, you know, given where the portfolio is trying to achieve that kind of like 6 to 10%, is yeah, just to stay short and then take advantage. I think if the 10-year gets to 4%, we've had this discussion, Gavin. I think if it gets mm. to 10 gets to 4% on the 10-year, that seems to be like a decent level to kind of start adding a bit of duration. We're not there yet. Things tend to break at 4%. I don't know. Have you noticed that, Gavin? Like all the banks seem to fall over at 4% and then you know everyone runs to their hills and wants duration. So that's my playbook. You know, look, couldn't agree with you more. The way I have my chart set up on the future, it is exactly that. And you can almost set your watch by it. Yeah, it looks so interesting, Ronnie. And just before we leave you, so we're we're clearly into a period here. We're potentially reshuffling a little bit of the deck on this higher for longer. Mm -hmm. So just as we look at the market over the last few weeks, it'd be pretty positive. We've seen stability. Are you seeing anything that's tempting you in from either a credit perspective or a positioning perspective, or you haven't made many changes over the last little while? You know, actually, the bond market month to date has actually been, you know, just driven by duration, actually. So if I just look at the corporate index, it's down 1.7% corporate bonds, and that's driven by duration, which I think is quite interesting. You know, like I think things are cheapening up for sure in the corporate credit market. A lot of it's supply-related. Pfizer, I don't know if you caught that, Gavin, but they did a $31 billion, fourth largest corporate bond deal ever. That was to pay for CGEN. You know, there's a lot of demand. It's a a big print. It's a big print. It took a lot of wind out of the market, I think. But yeah, like market just absorbed it. They do a one-day roadshow and get it done right. So Look, there was a lot of demand. I think you noticed there was a lot of demand for the like the longer, the 30, 40-year type tenor. So there is demand for duration out there. People certainly want that. I think I made the comment to you. I, I, right now, I kind of wonder whether or not with Apple, you know, Apple had a relatively large 10-year print, I think. And, you know, whether or not people are looking at these big corporates and saying, well, frankly, I'd rather own those than U.S. government bonds, which 
doesn't really make sense given everything gets priced off the sovereign credit anyway, to some extent, right? You know what? The funny thing is if they do default, I can almost feel it. Like treasuries will rally. There's nothing else to do, right? I remember, was it 2011 they got downgraded and they got like S&P did them and everyone just rushed to buy them. It's just, it's just like, it's the only thing you could do. This whole debt ceiling thing is so hard to trade. I think it's impossible to trade because you can look at analogies over time because of this, the debt ceiling keeps getting raised, which makes it likely it's going to get raised again. But you can look at each period and there's no real strategic pattern. Whether you're long or short, be it bonds or stocks, you can make a case yeah. the either could be the right strategy. So yeah, interesting. Well, look, interesting times. Thank you very much. You've had a great start to the year. You've produced some amazing returns and as we always know, with capital preservation, it's core. And I think we all appreciate that. Look forward to having you on in uh, the next couple of weeks, possibly to give us a refresher on uh, on the debt ceiling. And um, great catching up with you today. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's News on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.